Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When a beautiful young co-ed is murdered on campus in broad daylight. Uh, she was found f- face down and had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Folks in this charming Midwestern town are frozen with fear. It's very alarming because there's a high population of young women on a college campus. And when the killer strikes again, panic sets in. It made the community very, very uneasy that there was a serial killer out there. The hunt is on for the most evil of men. But finding him won't be easy. So you had to wonder, you know, would this case ever be solved? Finally, after years of breathtaking twists and turns, a killer is found hiding in plain sight. I'll never forget the first time I saw him. It was very powerful. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Set amongst the backdrop of idyllic farmhouses and rustic landscapes, Carbondale, Illinois has its own special charm. At its heart lies one of the state's largest universities, making this college town unique among its neighboring Midwestern communities. It was a railroad center originally back in the 1800s, but today Southern Illinois University is is a major research institution. 20,000 students uh, attend the university, and I think without the university, Carbondale wouldn't be the town it is. And while the town is known as the unofficial capital of Southern Illinois, Carbondale's SIU campus still maintains a small town kind of feel. It is a walking campus, and traversing through the woods or crossing a path over a railroad track is something you do every day almost. That's just how 21-year-old Susan Shoemake gets around campus in the summer of 1981. Susan's got a lot of ground to cover since she and three other roommates spend their senior year living in a house off campus. It's just the independence this city girl craves. Susan was from Chicago Heights. Her parents were a little bit worried about her being so far away from home, but Carbondale being a small town seemed pretty safe. Andrea Hahn should know. As a reporter for the local paper, she has become good and familiar with the area. And after working in media, 
she knows a little something about Susan's chosen field, radio and TV sales. A real go-getter, Susan spends her summer chasing those dreams. She was a very pretty girl, and in order to be successful at sales, you have to be outgoing and warm, friendly, honest, and she was all of those things. But her quest for success keeps Susan away from her family, and it's a difficult sacrifice for the devoted daughter and sister. She was very close to her brother, although he was four years older than she was, and she was very close with her, with her parents as well. But with her future so bright, Susan needs to keep her eye on the prize, and it looks as though all her hard work is going to pay off. Susan worked at WIDB, which is the student-run radio station for SIU. She had just been promoted to a sales representative position. Her coworkers expected her to succeed very well in that, not only at WIDB, but in the future. With her future unfolding, everything is just as it should be for Susan Shoemake. But all sense of security is shattered. When come graduation, SIU will have one less diploma to hand out in the spring of 1982. Today, Lieutenant Lowell McGee is retired, but his 30-some-odd years at the SIU Police Department were some of the best times of his life. We had a nice camaraderie, a nice and good department, and we had a good relationship with students. I enjoyed working with them. And the day-to-day -day as a campus cop isn't so bad either. On a daily basis, uh, things are usually you know, pretty quiet. At that time, wrote a lot of parking tickets and traffic tickets. But the peace and quiet comes to a screeching halt in the early morning hours of Tuesday, August 18th. Campus police receive a frantic call from a student who is worried sick about her roommate, Susan Shoemake. Said she had been attending a meeting on the SIU campus and to do back home at a certain time and she hadn't showed up. The concerned caller tells campus police Susan's meeting for the radio station was to take place at the student center at 3 p.m. And Susan was supposed to meet her there directly following for dinner. Said that was very unusual. Said she's very dependable and very prompt. She reported it to us about 3 a.m. in the morning. And when Susan is still not home by breakfast, campus police are pretty sure that something's amiss. Moving quickly to find the missing girl, they canvassed the area by the student center, where Susan was last known to be. Immediately searched the area where she was supposed to have been. They searched all the wooded areas and around the creeks. But campus police come up empty. That is until they connect with one of Susan's co-workers late that night. She tells police Susan had attended the meeting but it had been moved to another building on campus. The meeting was, in fact, being held at the WIDB office in Wright Hall. So she walked to Wright Hall, attended the meeting, and then was on her way back to the student center. Susan's co-worker tells police that after the meeting, Susan was headed in the direction of the student center. And she took a path less traveled, known to students as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And the shortcut, nicknamed during the Vietnam era, raises some red flags. That trail apparently was very, very well overgrown, like a jungle, and a perfect place for an ambush, hence the name Ho Chi Minh Trail. The mere mention of the trail sends chills down investigators' spines. 
it, it's not a very safe area. It was just a rugged, isolated trail, and uh, there had been attacks there before. Could Susan have run into trouble on her way back to the student center? At nearly midnight, officers rushed to the wooded trail. And using their flashlights going through the trail, uh, they noticed that the weeds on one side had been disturbed, mashed down, and uh, they followed that path for about 30, 40 feet, something like that. And at the end of the downtrodden path, there lies the body of Susan Shoemake. Her jeans and her underwear had been pulled down around her ankles. I was appalled, and I would immediately think that she had been sexually molested. The cause of death is unknown, but foul play is obvious. But luckily, Campus PD's trusty neighbor, the Carbondale Police Department, is waiting in the wings to help get to the bottom of this brutal crime. In 1981, Paul Eccles is a newbie on the Carbondale Police Force. And this young go-getter is already showing an interest in investigative work. There are people out there who just love to put puzzles together, and the ultimate puzzle was trying to resolve a crime. An ambitious rookie, Lieutenant Eccles takes a special interest in Susan's case from the moment it starts buzzing around the department, especially when he hears the gruesome details of the crime scene. It, it would appear that she had been knocked down in that area and that it appeared that she had been drugged into this secondary area where the weeds were pressed down. Even if they can retrace her final steps, investigators still can't answer the most important question. She had been murdered 36 hours earlier, so uh, there was a little bit of decomposition that started to set in. And so there was really no way for them to just look at her and determine how she had died. Without any obvious evidence at the crime scene, police are hopeful the autopsy will give them something to work with when Susan's body is removed. But first, they have an even harder job ahead of them. They've got to tell Susan's family their daughter is dead. The news was just, uh, it, it destroyed the family. Susan's father and an uncle had the responsibility to go identify the body, and I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. As Susan's family grieves, detectives begin their investigation. While this could simply be a crime of opportunity, they wonder, could there be someone sinister lurking in Susan's past? There was a boyfriend. Uh, Susan had dated a, a young man uh, who was also an SIU student. It's true what they say, love hurts. Detectives need to find out if it could also be motive for murder. Did a tortured affair turn deadly? 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The day after Susan Shoemake's body is found on the SIU campus, folks in the town of Carbondale, Illinois, are haunted by thoughts of homicide. Local journalist Andrea Hahn understands why her readers are spooked. This was an unprecedented attack. There hadn't been anything this violent committed in broad daylight on campus in anyone's memory. While the crime scene tells a horrific story, it's void of any clues about the killer's possible motive. Lieutenant Paul Eccles and the Carbondale PD look to Susan's past, and one person in particular catches their eye, a young man named Jake McKinnon. There was a boyfriend. Yes, he was questioned. But detectives quickly learn there's no way that Jake could have killed Susan. His alibi was good. He was in Colorado. He was a long way away. It doesn't look like anyone had it out for her. Now, investigators have got to ask, was Susan simply in the wrong place at the wrong time? One of the things the police officers did when they realized this might have been a stranger murder is they immediately began looking at recent parolees and sex offenders. And one name flashes to them like a beacon. It turns out that just four months earlier, a local man, John Paul Phillips, was paroled from Maynard Correctional Facility. And folks around these parts are well aware of his menacing ways. John Paul is as violent as they come. Uh, he'd went to prison for abducting a, a young lady and beating up and tying up her boyfriend uh, back in 1976. The couple survived. But Carbondale PD believes he's behind the attacks on two other women whose lives were not spared. Crimes he likely committed before he went to prison. Both these murders were very similar as far as the, uh, the MO, and uh, John Paul Phillips had actually lived nearby both of these victims. Just like Susan, both women were young and attractive. Police believe John Paul began his killing spree with an attack on a reserved young SIU student from Chicago named Teresa Clark. She was nude and her throat had been cut, she had been stabbed, and uh, you know there was blood trail where the suspect had pulled her from the living room into and put her into the bathtub. The killer's crude attempt to wash the body of clues ends up working. 
when police don't find any evidence. And they have the same problem a year later, when 24-year-old SIU student Kathleen McSherry is found dead in her apartment. She is uh, stabbed, uh, throat cut, coup de gras type murder, uh, sexually assaulted. But again, the killer leaves the crime scene evidence-free. Police are pretty sure John Paul is responsible for both homicides. And when news of Susan's murder spreads, investigators fear he's up to the same old tricks. He was well-known, and uh, investigators truly believed that if there was a woman raped and murdered, and if John Paul Phillips was anywhere around, he was the man. But speculation won't put John Paul behind bars for Susan's murder. Detectives need hard evidence. And when the autopsy results come back, investigators are hopeful they will get some. They could determine that she had been uh, struck on the head and the face. Uh, they could determine that she had been strangled. And they also determined that she had been uh, sexually assaulted. The M.E. is convinced Susan was strangled by hand, one of the most difficult ways to kill somebody. It would tend to make you believe that it's somebody that uh, is a criminal that uh, has been involved with other violent crimes. But that's not all the autopsy gives detectives. See, there were two foreign hairs that were recovered. One was a, a body hair and one was thought to be a pubic hair and some genetic material that was recovered during the rape exam. But in 1981, the semen sample is of little use. However, the hairs are helpful to detectives who can use them to include or exclude people from the suspect pool. With new evidence in their back pockets, detectives track John Paul down at his father's construction office, and the suspected serial killer isn't all too happy to see them. They ask him directly if he had any involvement in Susan's death, and he denies it. But there was something that, that stood out to him. He had scratches on his face. Knowing that Susan fought her killer, detectives jump on the new lead. So they ask him about the scratch. And he said that he had been at a friend's house, had been playing with the dog, and the dog had jumped up and scratched his face. It's an excuse that detectives find hard to believe especially when John Paul confirms that he was working on one of his father's construction sites on campus the day of the murder. So even his own alibi put him in the area. He's just very frustrating to know that this guy's capable, he's here, and this somewhat fits his M.O. So detectives cut to the chase and demand a hair sample. John Paul reluctantly plucks a few strands, but his demeanor is anything but helpful. He was not really participating in a way that would make them think he was not guilty. He had done a lot of bad things, and they knew he was mean and evil, and they just, uh, it just kind of confirmed what they thought, really. But they don't have enough to make an arrest, so John Paul remains a free man. It, it was very frustrating to know that he potentially could victimize somebody else, and we didn't want that to happen. Eager to punch holes in his alibi, Detectives want to talk to the man whose dog John Paul claims scratched his face. They go find the friend, and the friend denies it. The friend says, no, my dog didn't scratch his face. Now detectives are sure they're barking up the right tree. That is, until the hair comparison comes back, and it's not a match. So now investigators really don't know what to think. In fact, they're still suspicious of him and his activities and believe he's likely responsible for the murder of Susan Shoemate. So detectives confront John Paul with the news that the dog owner doesn't back up his claim. 
and he responds by feeding them another excuse. Said, really, I was with another friend and we were shooting a high-powered rifle and the scope had kicked back and hit me in the face. Well, he says he didn't tell the truth because he knew that it could possibly revoke his parole. John Paul's shooting buddy backs up his story, but police still aren't convinced he's innocent. After all, he was on campus the day of Susan's murder, so he remains at the top of their suspect list, especially since the hair comparison is hardly an exact science. There was always that chance that the hair could belong to somebody else and he could still be the killer. With a killer at large, the Carbondale PD are helpless. Luckily, the SIU campus police have made a recent discovery that just might turn this case on its head. A red tote bag was found by someone mowing a field about a quarter mile from the Ho Chi Minh Trail. A police officer happened to be driving by. The person who was mowing the lawn gave the tote bag to the police officer and the police officer brought it back to the station. Thinking it belonged to someone on campus, an officer goes through the bag looking for identification, but the contents lead him to believe the owner is no student. So he brings the bag to his good buddy, Detective Lowell McGee, who has reason to believe that it just might be connected to the crime. They found this prescription medication uh, that had been issued at uh, the the pharmacy at the uh, Prexton Institution there in Chester, Illinois, and it was issued to uh, Daniel Willison. Detective Lowell McGee's never heard Willison's name before, but he is familiar with the facility. And he's got a feeling something isn't right. Threw up a red flag to us. Right away, you know, you probably have someone on your campus that doesn't belong there. So Detective McGee gets on the phone with the parole office and learns a little more about Willison. It was doing time for a burglary, been released about three months ago, and he was in this area. And that's all Detective McGee needs to hear to consider him a suspect. So he tracks down Daniel Woolison, who is living at a cheap motel in town. He's very nervous, wouldn't look us in the eye. And uh, we asked him uh, if he had lost a bag, and he confirmed that he did lose, did have a bag, a tote bag. Woolison says he left the bag in the field a few days earlier. This down-on-his-luck ex-con claims he'd been living under a bridge in the woods a mile from the crime scene. He said he left the bag there because he didn't want the people he worked with to know that he'd been kicked out of the motel and that he was more or less living out of that bag. That may be true, but a vagrant with a criminal past squatting in the very woods where Susan was murdered is far too good of a lead to pass up. Something smells fishy about this fella. And it's not just his homeless hygiene. Could his desperation have taken a deadly turn? One week after the brutal rape and murder of a Southern Illinois University co-ed, students are worrying about more than their GPAs. The deadly attack is the talk of the campus and dominates the local news. This is a small rural area. Uh, the death of someone is, is pretty big news, especially the death of a student. As a local journalist, Rod Seavers is pretty familiar with this academic beat. And when no arrests have been made, he can tell folks are desperate for answers. There was uh, uh, some tension. I know there was a lot of, of people questioning, like, what's going on here? Luckily, Campus detective Lowell McGee just might be able to help. 
he has a clue that could lead to Susan's killer. A red tote bag found in the same woods where Susan was murdered that belongs to recent parolee Daniel Woolison. Police have been questioning him at a local motel where the young man has been living. It's beginning to confirm that, you know, you're really on the right trail. You know, you really have got the right guy. While there's no reason to believe this two-bit burglar has turned violent, police ask him about Susan just the same. We did ask Daniel Wilson if, if he knew her, and he said no. He never knew her. He, he said he didn't know any girls at SIU, had never met any of them. But when they ask Woolison where he was the night of the murder, his alibi hardly holds water. He claims he was with a friend named Mark in the nearby town of Carterville. And Lieutenant Paul Eccles of the Carbondale PD thinks his story is rocky at best. Well, he provided an address, and so the detectives drove with him to try to find this house. Unable to provide a last name for Mark, police have no way of following up on their own. And forced to follow Woolison's lead, they end up on a wild goose chase. He pointed out a house, went up, knocked on the door, but the person says they, they didn't know who he was. Sounds like Mark just might be a figment of Woolison's imagination. Investigators are going to need to dig a little deeper into this guy's story. But first, they demand a hair sample. He provided head and pubic hair samples. Uh, he was very cooperative with them. And when Woolison's hair is not a match to those found on Susan... Investigators rule him out as a suspect. Don't go too far, my friend. Thank you. No, he just appeared to be perfectly normal. Didn't appear to be a weirdo or anything like that. With another suspect cleared, police have no idea where to turn next. Weeks after the crime, Susan's case is still exactly where it started, at square one. We had all failed. Some parents had entrusted their student to our care and... And they wound up murdered. And you, you, you feel bad about that. While Detective McGee struggles with the false start, years of building his own farm machinery has taught him it takes time to get things up and running. So I've made a couple small miniature tractors and uh, made a lot of other equipment. It's a little something he picked up way back when, out of necessity. They had no decent equipment in 1962, so I said, I'll just build one. So I made one, and it's still working. While McGee is all smiles at home, it's quite a different story at work. The diehard detective just won't be happy until Susan's case is closed. You know, it's, it's one of those situations that you do all you can do. The case is at a standstill until three months after Susan's murder, police get another lead. It's hardly a welcomed clue. The body of a 30-year-old waitress and former SIU student is found just north of Carbondale in an abandoned coal mine. And Lieutenant Paul Eccles immediately picks up on the similarities to Susan's case. She had been beaten and apparently sexual assaulted. And that's not all. Just like Susan, the victim, Joan Weatherall, was strangled to death. The young woman was last seen leaving a bar in an area known as the Strip. So people really wondered uh, what was going on in the community. Was someone on the loose randomly killing young women? And any hope of catching Joan's killer is washed away at the crime scene. There's very little in the way of physical evidence because her, her, her body was found nude and she had been pushed into the water. 
With a second girl raped and murdered in under three months, police fear there's a serial killer on the loose. And just one month later, he strikes again. Another SIU student on exchange from Brazil, Esperanza Posa, is abducted from the strip in Carbondale. But this time, something is different. She went along with the rape and she uh, complimented the rapist and she used her own psychology on him. Thinking he had some kind of relationship with the girl, the attacker let her live. And actually brought her back and turned her loose back where he had abducted her. But unfortunately, she's unable to identify her attacker because he'd covered her face. Just one month later, with everyone in Carbondale on high alert, another attack occurs in Carterville, just 10 miles away. 22-year-old Florence Busey is stopped by a man looking for directions to the local pastor's house. And as she started to walk away, all at once she was grabbed from behind. And she was drugged toward this pickup truck. But luck shone on Florence this day. And when she saw an opportunity to escape, she took it. As he reached for the door handle, she was able to knee him in the groin and get away. Not only does she evade her attacker, quick-thinking Florence moves to catch him. She runs to a nearby police station and tells an officer what has happened. And together, they go looking for the attacker. So the officer got in his police car and chased down the truck, made a vehicle stop, identified the driver. And it's none other than the suspected serial rapist and killer, John Paul Phillips. He was arrested for attempted kidnapping and uh, various other crimes that were connected to that incident. John Paul Phillips is arrested for attempted abduction. And when Esperanza Posa identifies him as her rapist in a photo lineup, he's charged with that as well. And the man everyone has been fearing is finally behind bars. It came in one evening that an arrest had been made. And I remember probably saying something to the effect of, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. While the town starts to feel safe again, detectives can't rest easy. Without any evidence to connect John Paul to Susan's murder, investigators are at a standstill, and their suspect is anything but helpful. Journalist Andrea Hahn knows it's not likely he will confess when he won't even walk himself into court. Phillips was not the most cooperative suspect. He had to be bodily carried into court at one point. In June of 1982, John Paul is convicted of attempted abduction and sentenced to 45 years in prison. Even though he's yet to be charged with any of the murders, police are confident they've done their job. It validated everything the investigators thought about the other murders, including Susan Shoemake's murder. Police put the case to bed, believing Susan's killer is behind bars. But years later, a startling confession will bring the case roaring back to life. Nearly three years after Susan Shoemake's murder, police still seek the conviction of her killer. But not the good folks of Carbondale. They believe he is none other than the recently incarcerated John Paul Phillips. There were quite a few people who felt that even though he'd never been charged with Susan Shoemake's murder, that he had in fact been the one who had done it, including some of her family members. And two years later, when John Paul finds his conscience and starts confessing to murders while in the clink, police wonder if they can finally put Susan's case to bed. John Paul Phillips talked to someone while he was in prison 
and admitted that he had killed these women. It's true what they say. There's no honor among thieves or convicts. John Paul's cellmate relays the information to authorities. Lieutenant Eccles knows it's the break police have been waiting for. He confesses and gives great detail into the murders of Teresa Clark and Kathleen McSherry and Joan Weatherall and a few others. With confessions piling up like interest on student loans, investigators hope that Susan's name will be next on the list. I had been led to believe, like many others, that he killed Susan Shoemate. But it's the one admission this chatty killer has yet to make. In fact, he outright insists Susan was not one of his victims. His word is a little bit suspect, but the fact that he named his other three victims and specifically excluded Susan certainly seemed to indicate that he was telling the truth on that point. Detectives seem to have found the one murder in Carbondale John Paul won't admit to. They do what they can to get John Paul off the streets for good. When the state's attorney at the time reviewed the information, he then decided to prosecute John Paul Phillips for Joan Weatherall's murder. Putting all their eggs in one basket, the state focuses on the case that occurred just three months after Susan's for good reason. It's the only murder John Paul admits to that took place after Illinois became a death penalty state. Subsequently, he is uh, sentenced to death and goes up to the Menard Correctional Center where he's held on death row. While it doesn't bring closure to Susan's case, her family is comforted by the conviction. As far as the family was concerned, the case was closed. The murder had been solved. They were content with believing that John Paul Phillips had done it. But police will never be content without a concrete resolution. Refusing to close the books on Susan's case, they keep digging. But the empty hole only gets bigger when 20 years pass and no new evidence has surfaced. Rod Seavers echoes the concerns of the town. As the years went on, no new information was coming out. So you had to wonder, you know, would this case ever be solved? It doesn't appear so when the case grows deader than a corn crop in an early frost. While Susan's murder gradually fades into the distance, police do their best to keep hope alive. On an anniversary, the police would say, we're still working, it, it's not ever going to fall off our radar. Like a tractor with a flat tire, this case is going nowhere. Detective Lowell McGee struggles to make peace with the unsolved murder, even after he retires from the SIU campus police. It bothered me. Um, it bothered me very much. It never left my mind. Lieutenant Paul Eccles has a hard time shaking the unsolved case as well, especially when years later, he starts training with forensic science experts at the FBI and picks up on a little something called DNA. I did get a couple opportunities to go to the FBI Academy for advanced training. And he quickly connects the dots between a new technology and an old case. And so I immediately thought of Susan's because I knew that there's some biological material that could help resolve her case. Using the sample left by the killer during the sexual assault, a genetic profile is constructed and a killer begins to take form. It looks as though the good people of Carbondale will get answers to the questions they gave up on long ago. It kind of became almost apparent that this guy would never, whoever it was, would never be caught. But not with Lieutenant Paul Eccles on the case. 
eager to get the ball rolling again. He knows exactly where to start. Well, my reaction is, where is John Paul Phillips? And he soon learns that John Paul Phillips died from a massive heart attack while on death row a few years earlier. And to add insult to injury, there's no trace of his DNA on file. He had died before those standards had been gathered, so John Paul Phillips' DNA was, was not available to me. Luckily, he's buried in a nearby cemetery, and the remains are easy enough to obtain. The vault was, of course, dug up and taken to a, a confined area where we could do the actual uh, uh, exhumation. And experience tells Lieutenant Eccles that it might take a while before the DNA results come back. But it turns out it's well worth the wait when they're able to extract a sample from John Paul's corpse. About a year later, we received the results on the DNA profile of John Paul Phillips. But the good old college try goes bust. It turns out John Paul Phillips was telling the truth when he said he didn't murder Susan. His DNA doesn't match that found on her body at the crime scene. Everybody was just really convinced that it was going to be uh, a foregone conclusion that it would be John Paul Phillips. It's a bitter pill to swallow, but Lieutenant Eccles doesn't let it get him down. The cold case investigator rebounds faster than a power forward on the SIU Saluki basketball team. I had to jump back into the case and look at who were the other prime suspects in the case, and we needed DNA from them. Diving back into the case file, he snags a figure from the past and pulls him into his present investigation. A career criminal who has yet to retire. Through the criminal checks that I'd been doing, I knew he had been involved in a few other things through the years. Up until now, his crimes haven't kept him behind bars for long. But one incident in particular stands out to Lieutenant Eccles. He abducts a, a young lady from a shopping mall, pulls a knife, and demands that she drive to a certain location. Thankfully, the woman escapes at a traffic light, and it brings detectives to a shocking conclusion. The man they thought was a petty criminal when they interviewed him just days after Susan's murder might be a violent guy after all. I mean, he was a predator, simply put. He was a predator of women. And maybe, just maybe, he's the killer cops have been looking for all these years. Twenty years after the murder of Susan Shoemake, advanced technology has reopened the book on Carbondale's case. And hiding between the pages of the case file is an old suspect that Lieutenant Paul Eccles has a renewed interest in. Daniel Woolison, the vagrant ex-con who left his bag in the woods where Susan was murdered, is suddenly back on the board. He's been subject to forensic comparison and he was eliminated. But we still needed to do this firmly with the DNA now that we had the unknown profile. He's no longer living in Carbondale, but Lieutenant Eccles doesn't have any trouble tracking Daniel Woolison down. I had run his, uh, uh, his name and his birth date. Daniel Woolison was living near Detroit, Michigan. Lieutenant Eccles throws himself at the mercy of Michigan's Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department to help make contact with Woolison. This was like the fourth or fifth agency I'd contacted, and I voiced my frustration, and the lieutenant says, well, it's not our jurisdiction, but we'll still do it. Detective Michael Downey, a young dynamo, gets assigned the case. He tracks down Woolison at the junkyard where he works. He said that uh, Daniel turned kind of uh, pale in color, 
that uh, he seemed to be highly stressed. And when Lieutenant Eccles hears Woolison refuses to give a DNA sample, he thinks it's proof positive this guy's got something to hide. It led me to believe that, you know, there, there may be something to this. Maybe Daniel Woolison is guilty. And we had to get his DNA. And with the help of the Michigan police, this diehard detective isn't going to quit until he gets it. Over the next few months, there was an effort made to follow Daniel Willison, to get a cigarette butt that he might throw down, to maybe get a, a soda can, something that he would discard that might have his DNA. Not to be outsmarted, the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department gets clever. He had a car registered to his name, and they noticed that it was wanted by the Detroit Police Department. Turns out Woolison sold the car to some unsavory folks who were recently involved in a homicide. But this is one criminal act Woolison doesn't seem to be connected to. The suspects involved were African-American, where Daniel Woolison was Caucasian. With the car in police custody, cops search for any signs of DNA that Daniel Woolison may have left behind. When they see an ashtray full of cigarette butts, they may have found their golden ticket. The owner of the car said they belonged to the guy I bought the car from. So potentially, we could have Willison's DNA on one of the cigarette butts. It's not a sure thing, but it's a good start. So we were, you know, really excited about that. We just picked one at random and sent it through the Michigan State Police Crime Lab system. It takes a few months to get results, but it turns out to be well worth the wait. The DNA on the cigarette butt is a match to that found on Susan at the crime scene. It was extremely exciting. It was one of those things where I kept looking at it and looking at it to make sure I'm not seeing it wrong. But the investigation is far from over. They still need to get a sample straight from Woolison to be sure he was the one sucking down the smokes. It's a DNA match out of an ashtray, not to a person. It's great evidence, but uh, just wasn't, wasn't enough yet. Lieutenant Eccles hightails it to Michigan so he can get a biological sample. There, he finds a clueless Woolison at the junkyard where he works. I'll never forget the first time I saw him. He was standing over at the counter. It, it was very powerful. I mean, you know, one part of me wanted to jump the counter and grab him by the throat, <laughs> but uh, obviously you can't do that. Instead, Lieutenant Eccles takes him to a local hospital to get a DNA sample. Then to the police station, where Woolison denies having anything to do with Susan's murder. But he doesn't remember exactly what he was doing on the day in question. During our interrogation, there were times where he would answer that he didn't necessarily remember exactly what happened. That's about as close as I ever got to a confession. But Lieutenant Eccles does get him to admit he was in the woods the day Susan was murdered. The admission, combined with the circumstantial evidence, is enough for a warrant. Daniel Woolison is arrested and charged with murder 23 years after the death of Susan Shoemake. Not surprisingly, his DNA sample comes back a match shortly after. It's a pointed moment in my career. There are certain points that you do remember, and that's certainly one of the high points. Two years later, on March 17, 2006, Daniel Woolison is found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Restricted to sentencing guidelines from 1981, it is the toughest punishment he could receive. But journalist Andrea Hahn 
knows it will never be enough. Susan was deprived of her youth. She was deprived of her potential. Mr. Wollaston had his youth. He had his choices. He ended up working at a junkyard. Even though Daniel Woolison never confessed to killing Susan Shoemake, authorities believe this is what happened on that fateful day in August of 1981. In order to get to the student center, Susan used a well-known shortcut known to the students as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But the time-saving tactic turns deadly when she encounters the homeless parolee, Daniel Woolison. I would guess that he was out lurking about trying to find somebody to rob. But when he sees a pretty young co-ed coming, he changes gears. He realizes she's small, she's petite, and so he chooses to rape her. But Susan isn't going down without a fight. He strangles her to try to gain control over her, and in, in the process does murder her. And now that she can no longer fight back, he carries out the rest of the attack. I firmly believe that she was unconscious, if not deceased, when the sexual assault took place. It's the only known rape and murder committed by Woolison, but Lieutenant Eccles suspects there may be others. Only he and God knows what else he did, but it's hard for me to believe that Daniel Woolison picked August 17, 1981 to rape and murder for the first time. For 23 years, Daniel Woolison gets away with murder. Technology that didn't even exist at the time he committed the murder caught up with him, finally and had a hand in bringing him to justice. While authorities have closed the books on Susan's case, Carbondale continues to pay homage to the beautiful co-ed who now serves as a cautionary tale. There no longer is the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but there is now is a covered pedestrian walkway, the Susan Shoemake Memorial Walkway. Despite its rocky history, Southern Illinois University is a respected academic institution, churning out tomorrow's leaders. Longtime resident Rod Seavers believes it's got that quintessential college town feel. It's a nice campus, it's a very peaceful campus, so it's a nice place to go to school, it really is, and that's not changed at all.